Bobby, you see the email that Peter just sent? No. What do you say? He's, he said the Zoom link you sent him wasn't working. Use the same one I'm using with you right now? Oh, he just entered. Oh, wait. Whoa, wait. Whoa. <laughs> just wait, tell you. me what he said. Oh, wait. Entered. Oh. back to the Futures Edge podcast. I'm Jim Uriel. As usual, Bob Iacchino, the brains behind the operation, executive producer, will be the co-host. And today we have Peter Bookbar, the chief investment officer of Bleakley Financial Group and the editor of The Book Report. Get it? Book Report. Peter Bookbar, very clever. Peter. Which, by the way, before, before I let you talk, I do want to say one thing. We've been doing this, this podcast now for about 20 weeks, 20 episodes, and I don't know what it is, but we've been able to get the most fantastic guests. Bobby, I credit you with that. This is just amazing. Peter's just one more in a long line of Cameron Dawson, Jim Bianco, Larry McDonald. We, we have such great conversations here, and I'm thankful for it. I would keep doing this forever if you guys let me and I had let it go for two hours, but thanks for coming, Peter. Well, well it's, it's our chance to talk to you, market veterans, as well. Uh, goes both ways. I look at it like this. They generally know Jimmy and they generally end up liking me. So we hope that's a setup for a, for a future appearance. It's By the way, mix. did I, Peter froze when I think he was complimenting me. It was my Wi-Fi freezing. No, he didn't I, compliment you. He, he didn't at he all. He didn't? Oh, I thought he was about to. And then I, <laughs> then I couldn't hear him. I'm just going to fill it in that he did. How about that? Okay. That before, Peter, before yeah, we get down assumption. to any business, we, we got to establish some credibility. Uh, we generally go with dogs versus cats, favorite TV shows. What's your favorite song and why is it Brandy by the Looking Glass? Go answer any of those questions you feel like. Uh, favorite TV shows. I mean, I guess you can say Seinfeld, but if you want to go back earlier than that, I was always a fan of Family Ties and Cheers. Nice. But what about the we last two cat. and a half years? Uh, last two and a half years. I mean, shows. Uh, like you know, sorry, like streaming shows. Uh, I was a fan of Breaking Bad. We just finished uh, Better Call Saul. Oh, that's uh, so good. That Better was very good. So good. Yeah, high quality, high quality TV. Um, watching Stranger Things, but not done yet, so don't say anything. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I want so badly to tell you about Stranger Things because I have so many thoughts on the last season. But is Breaking yeah. Bad better? I mean, is Better Call Saul better than Breaking Bad, Peter? No, no, no. It's not better. Uh, and the first couple of seasons were a bit slow, but the last couple of seasons got really good. And uh, it segued into uh, Breaking Bad enough that uh, it's definitely worth watching. High quality TV. Okay, good. Now, when you finished Stranger Things the last season, call me because I have to rant about a few things. It's very hard <laughs> for me not to rant. Which, by the way, we had um, Mitch Rochelle on the show. He uh, he said, "Winning time." The Lakers. Uh, Bobby, did you ever watch it? Yeah, winning time. Uh, other than the soft, soft porn component it's to it, definitely soft porn. It's completely gratuitous and not unnecessary, and yet somehow I'm still thankful for it. Um, I thought it was really entertaining. Like the three of us kind of lived through that era. Watched Michael yeah. Jordan, uh, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, that would, to me was basketball. I don't even watch the NBA anymore because it's not, again, sounding like the old crabby guy, like I sound like most of the time. That winning time was fantastic. I'd recommend it to anyone who knows that era. I don't know how good it is if you don't know that era. Peter, did you watch it? Yes, I, I watched it. And it's based on a book called Showtime written by this guy, Jeff Perlman. I actually had read, read the book because uh, I had spoken to Jeff Perlman once uh, a, a couple of years ago, and I, and I had at the time bought a bunch of his books. He wrote that. He wrote a great book on the, uh, the USFL, uh, wrote a book also on the Kobe Shaq Lakers, uh, wrote really? a book on the 86 Mets, wrote a book on Clemens. Uh, so he's, he's, he's pretty prolific. And uh, the book Showtime was, uh, was excellent. So it was entertaining to watch the, uh, uh, the movie uh, after yeah. reading the book. That's awesome. My buddy was on the Showtime Lakers, the 881 team, 
Kevin McKenna, who's my brother's teammate a couple of years ahead of me and still a good friend. Huh. And he refuses to comment on any of it as if it was true or false. The one thing I thought was weird about Winning Time is that each character got like one characteristic and they then beat the hell out of that characteristic. But I still thought it was good as hell. I thought it was really, really good. Yeah. What I, what I found cool was how much the uh, actors looked like the actual oh, players. No doubt. And personnel. Yeah. My brother used to go to some of the practices um, sometimes when he would go to L.A. to visit our mutual, our buddy. And he said that Kareem, people were terrified of Kareem. He told a story once about in practice, people were irritating him and he took a basketball and he whipped it across the court. And it must have hit like a bolt or something that was sticking out of the wall and completely popped as it hit the wall. And everybody was just dead quiet, like, holy shit, this guy's crazy. But I thought it was a funny story. It always stood out to me. But. Yeah, the, the book makes it clear that um, he's an interesting guy. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk about some business. So we, we record this on Friday afternoon, the 18th. Stock market got the, just pummeled today. It, all, it seemed to start last night, almost around midnight, and rates started to go up at the same time. It seems to me, for some odd reason, I don't know what it is, all of a sudden we're worried about Jackson Hole. We're worried about um, Jay Powell saying something uh, – that leads us to believe he's more hawkish. What's your read on that? So he he's, I think, going to maintain the, the the steadiness of their policy in the sense of they want to be consistent and sort of carry this out uh, rather than stopping and letting the markets sort of inflate again and the economy inflate again. Uh, so I think what we heard from other Fed members this week is basically a, a precursor for what Powell will say. And I think he'll sort of repeat that. Now, keep in mind, the, the, the Fed, and we've clearly learned this, uh, the, you know, there are no magicians. Uh, there are no soothsayers. They are essentially winging it, and they've been winging it for a while. So when we look to Jay Powell and what he's going to say for these firm answers, he doesn't even know. I mean, between the August 25th uh, day that he's going to speak and the eventual meeting at the end of September, you know, there's a lot of data to see. So why would he pigeonhole himself uh, into a position? I think he's going to talk tough and and reiterate to the markets that he's going to crack down on the demand side of the economy to to quell inflation, and he's not going to stop uh, until he gets there. Now he'll also acknowledge that they can't continue at 75 basis points forever, and that they have to slow that down. And and you know what? They'll eventually stop. Uh, but at the same time, how dovish can he be when quantitative tightening in two weeks is about to ramp up to its max peak? Uh, because then you'd be to totally diluting the impact of that. I mean, you have to understand that the, the mentality of the markets going back to uh, 2010, and I, and I say 2010 because sort of QE1, well, actually even goes back to, to 09, but every major market correction since 09, I'm talking about post crash and then we had rallies coincided with either the end of QE the of QT and also the rate hikes whether it was 10% or, or up to 20% after QE1 and QE2 ended so you can literally just isolate those moments so the market now over the last 2 months with the backdrop of very bearish sentiment well they take out their playbook and they say okay when's the fed going to stop and okay, inflation's peaking. That means they're close to stopping and they're going to maybe calibrate rate hikes from 75 to 50. Okay. That means almost they're done and let's buy stocks because it's worked every single time over the past uh, 13 years. So I think that's the mentality, but I think what we're going to get is, uh, and maybe we got it this week, the beginning of it, it's just a reality check that it's just not going to be that easy. And you also have an economic slowdown that we're in the middle, we're just in the beginning of, uh, that is also sort of a fly in that playbook. So you mentioned the economic slowdown, which I agree with you completely. I think that particularly after seeing that Empire Fed, which I know is certainly a tier two number, but added to the other numbers we've seen, seems like it, it could be a, a significant slowdown. Don't want to say recession because then they'll just redefine it again. Um, but you said potentially slowdown. Do you think inflation has genuinely rolled over. And before you answer, I'm saying that we've seen gas prices come off 30%. We've seen lumber get cratered, copper down. Um, has inflation peaked or not? Well, let, let, let's separate out goods, prices, and services. 
in different directions sometimes. And I say that because the 20 years leading into COVID, services inflation, X energy averaged 2.8%. Core goods prices in the 20 years leading into COVID averaged zero. You meld them together and that equals 1.7% inflation and you were either above or below that depending on where food and energy went. So now we have a sharp increase in goods prices over the past couple of years married with this acceleration in services. But for five straight months, we've seen a slowdown in the rate of change in core goods prices. So core goods prices on a rate of change basis has clearly peaked. Services inflation though has been accelerating and has mostly offset that slowdown in, in goods prices. Goods prices will continue to fall. Services prices will continue to rise on a net net basis. And along with the, the tougher comps, the rate of change will slow down. And I think people know that that's going to happen. The question is, is how fast does it drop and where does it drop to and where does inf inflation eventually settle out? And, and I argue it's going to be settling out at some point next year at around three to four. And uh, it's going to be a while before we get back to that one to two that we sort of were, were medicated on for years heading into COVID. So, so there's next questions, two questions. I think the Fed is going to move to neutral. I'm not saying pivot, Bobby, so you don't scream again. They're going to move to neutral at the end of September. I also think the 20, 30 year period where we had such, such tame inflation for so long, I think there were a lot of factors that still exist. I think higher on the list than people give credit for is the internet where you're no longer are you just subject to the prices that you see? Everybody, even for labor, even for jobs, both sides, everything is such more of a competitive field that it kept prices from rising. So the first part of the question is, do you agree or disagree? And why am I an idiot for thinking September they move to neutral? Secondly, don't those factors still exist? And could they potentially keep inflation down in years to come? Okay, let me, let me take that one step at a time. I'm just writing this down. Okay, technology. Yes, technology is deflationary. But te technology has been deflationary since the history of time. And whether it's the internet, whether it's the automobile, whether it's the telephone, uh, it's, it's always deflationary. But you get these cyclical bouts of, of, of inflation. Uh, neutral. Okay, neutral is, the neutral rate, first of all, is a made-up number that the Fed's econometric models spit out. But according to their model, it's predicated on 2% inflation and a 4% unemployment rate equals a 2.5% neutral rate. Well, if unemployment is not 4% and it's lower, if inflation is well above 2, well, then the neutral rate has to be well above 2.5. So when Powell at the last uh, press conference said, oh, we're at neutral, it made no sense because they're not. It, it, it was conflating the whole concept of it. Uh, and the last point, wait, was there, there was one more point you made about inflation, um, settling back down again, or it was just, it was technology yeah. and the Yeah, will technology okay. be able to keep a lid on it? Right. So, so again, it, it always does. The reason why I think inflation will settle out at three to four is, you know, I, I talked about the, the inflation treads going into COVID that basically got us to that one and a half to 2%. So if you now look at this, the new, this new world we're in, will core goods prices go back to zero? That's, that's, a, that's a key part of this inflation discussion. And I'll argue not so soon because we've replaced just-in-time inventory with just-in-case inventory. That is a structural global change, which means higher inventories, more working capital needs, less cash flow, and likely and lower inventory turns and likely higher prices. And also one of the key deflators of inflation for the last couple of decades was cheap labor out of China. And that's over. So where is that cheap labor going to come from? Yeah, maybe it'll come from Vietnam or some other Asian countries, but you're not going to be able to replicate that cheap labor out of China. So that's another factor why I don't see goods prices settling back out at its pre-COVID level of zero. Again, you'll have that deflationary tendency of technology, but you're going to have some of this, these secular uh, uh, offsets, uh, this new secular offset. In terms of services, a lot of it's rents. Uh, core CPI is 40% shelter. And yeah, rent growth is going to moderate, but it's moderating off you know, 15 to 20% growth that we saw over the last couple of years. Uh, education, those prices are pretty sticky to the upside. Insurance, 
pretty sticky to the upside. Medical care costs, pretty sticky to the upside. So I think that's why, th these are my organs for why we're going to be settling out at a higher level of inflation relative to what we're used to. Okay, what, I'm going to ask one more, Bobby, then I want you to chime in. But you mentioned before that the Fed is winging it. Um, I want to dissect winging it for a second, because I think you will agree with me when I, when I said that, say that a year and a half ago, everyone, including you and I, knew that they shouldn't be buying mortgage backs. That's, I mean, we knew they shouldn't have been doing a lot of things. The fact they were buying mortgage bonds into the, uh, into the teeth of a red hot, red hot real estate market even back then, to me, seems egregious and awful. And, and it really made them, to me, seem like politically motivated halfwits. You said winging it. Do you agree with the, that that it was politically motivated to a certain extent? And do you believe that the political motivation to in certain times keep rates below what they should be in order to inflate asset prices and make things look good still exists? So with respect to MBS, I think that was a perfect example of them winging it. Now, you, you, you can... You can you can argue that when they were doing it in late 08 into 09, buying MBS because of, of what was the state of the housing market then and, and, and what bank balance sheets looked like, okay, uh, the Fed could, could legitimize the, the, the reason for buying MBS. This time around, it was almost out of habit. The, the, there, was no, there was no reason to be buying. There was no distress in the housing market in March 2020. It was, it was out of habit. And just doing QE was out of habit. Now, granted, they will say, well, foreigners were puking U.S. Treasuries. We needed to step in and backstop it. Okay, but that did not substantiate buying MBS in March of 2020 and not stopping until March of 2022 and watching home prices just accelerate uh, all through that time period. I mean, home prices are up 40 percent in two years. It, home, it's, we're not talking about Bed Bath & Beyond stock or some other meme stock. I'm talking about homes that are 40% over two years. Now, in terms of the politics of, of monetary policy, it, there's no doubt that it, it sort of seeps in because the Fed, unfortunately, has become the, you know, the minister of social justice. And they, that was shown writ large over the past couple of years is we need to be as easy as possible because we need to bring back, we need to allow the economy to bring back the jobs that were lost in COVID. And not understanding that you're not going to actually see healthy uh, recovery from COVID unless you had stable prices, because stable prices are the precursor to bringing these jobs back. And that's why they were so easy saying, oh, we, we need these jobs. So even though the supply demand imbalance for, for jobs were, 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 was clear, uh, I, I think they got woke and that is part politics. And that's what sort of blinded them to right-sizing monetary policy when they should have rather than when they did. Bobby? Yeah, Peter, I got a couple of questions for you. And one of my um, sort of core theses right now is that the Fed cares about credibility at this point in time. And I think there's several reasons why I could be wrong about that. We've heard people talk about the Fed having a credibility problem for 20 years now. Right. I mean, it comes up every single time they adjust policy. Well, if they don't do this, they have a credibility problem. If you have current, okay, understanding that there's a lag, if you have the current unemployment rate at 3.5%, and you have the current year over year inflation at 8.5%, I mean, what would they be doing if those were flipped? Do they have any way out of continuing to be aggressive? And, and by the way, the comment Jimmy made about pivot is, is I get upset when people think that going from 75 basis points to 25 basis points or even 50 is somehow a pivot. Even if they pause completely, to me, it's a pause. A pivot would be going to easy monetary policy. Now I'm learning that I'm in the minority in that, Jim, by the way, but- Good, um, good. It's, I mean- That'd be a lesson to you. Well, it's, they're all stupid is what it is. But from that perspective, do they have any way out or do they not care about credibility? No, I, I think we're at the point where Jay Powell very much cares about his legacy and credibility uh, because they know they so badly bungled this. Uh, I mean, this is, was, is a complete embarrassment for the Fed. I mean, obviously, one of their main jobs is price stability, and we've had price instability uh, to the greatest extent in 40 years. So I do think that they're, they're trying to get that back. And I, I, I do believe that Jay Powell doesn't want to be Arthur Burns, even though he is. Uh, so I think that they're trying to regain credibility uh, because they know the importance of it. You know, I talked about 
uh, Jay Powell wanted to be the Minister of Social Justice of the Ministry of Social Justice. Uh, I, I think when you hear him talk about, right, and he's been talking about this most of the most of the press conferences this year is we need price stability first in order to have better growth. He was saying the exact opposite uh, until late 2021. So he understands how he's had to flip uh, the story here. And but but the hiking monetary policy and impacting the demand side is all they have in order to respond to the situation we're in. And it's delusional to think that this is going to be pain free. It's just a matter of how much pain needs to be tolerated. And, you know, with respect to Powell and tying it into politics, Jay, uh, Joe Biden did not want him reappointed. He wanted Lel Brainerd. Therefore, Jay Powell does not feel like he owes Biden anything. And I think that the, the politics of this will be less influential right now in how he handles this uh, than it would otherwise. So I think they're just with their fingers crossed that somehow they can thread this needle. I don't think that they can, but it's, it's, it's monetary policy play by ear, to be honest, after they basically front-loaded this monetary tightening on the rate side. But on the other hand, they're sort of back-end loading the QT part because it's only really just starting in a few weeks. Can you even so, talk about a pause or a pivot if the QT continues and they slow the rate hike or could accelerates actually, right? It's scheduled to accelerate. And if that happens and they pause rate hikes or they even slow down to 25 basis points, is that anywhere near a pivot? So they will stop raising rates, I believe, by the either September or by the end of the year. They don't want to necessarily stop in September. I just think the, the economy will force their hand. But after September, which they'll take the Fed funds rate to three, we're not going to have that much left on the rate side. Uh, and I do think that they're going to want to continue to shrink the balance sheet. But going from stopping to cutting, this inflation situation, even though it's going to slow on a rate of change basis, is going to tie their hands in terms of then cutting. You know, that, that, that's one thing that the market has been so used to is, OK, they hike us into recession and then they start cutting. Uh, to, to, to deal with the recession. But you have to be a student to history to understand that that's not necessarily a green light for buying stocks. Uh, Greenspan raised rates by 50 basis points to 6.5%. And then he stopped in January. Two, I think he started cutting January 2001. But the, the stock market didn't bottom until October of 2002. Uh, the Fed stopped cutting, I'm sorry, stopped hiking in the summer of 06. Yeah, the market kept on going, but we know what they are, that would happen thereafter. And then they were cutting by 07, and then we sold off. So I, I, I think that people have to be a little deeper in their analysis of making their buy and sell decisions at this point uh, based on when the Fed's going to stop raising interest rates. But, you know, that said, we're going to have a rip-roaring rally when, when we have a Fed meeting and Powell says, you know what, we're, we're going to stop for now and, and take a lay of the land. Uh, you'll have a big rally. Then we'll see what the state of the economy is uh, when he says that. But um, there's a there's there's a, a long bridge uh, between them stopping and then eventually cutting in response to the recession that I think we're in right now. Hey, can we ask a question about markets? You you mentioned equity markets. So we've had basically eight months of trading negative to sideways. Two years ago, we had a thirty six percent drop. My experience from the big bubble busts we've seen real estate and then the tech stock market is that it's not as much about the fundamental picture. It is certainly a lot about the fed, but in order to have these enormous downdrafts, you have to have market position built up and a lack of respect for risk and people all heading to the exits at the same time. I don't mean to put you asleep with the long question, but I will talk about the real estate market real quick is that when the real estate market is correcting right now, it's not like in 06 when there's been three decades of market positions built up and your brother-in-law is a plumber, owns five homes at any moment. And, and that's not the case right now. Do you, can you, uh, is there a metaphor for that, for the stock market, for the real estate market? Is the big one going to happen or could it happen? So, so basically you, you, the question you're sort of asking is, is, is there a big bubble out there to deflate, which right. creates the big one? Well, I, I can argue that, and, and, and 
we'll, we'll have to see how this plays out, that we saw over the past 10 years, the biggest bubble of them all. And that's what, that was in sovereign bonds. That's when we had at the peak $18 trillion of negative yielding bonds, where the, the central banks, particularly the BOJ and, and the ECB, turned an asset, a bond that paid you interest and in principal, turned it into a liability where it cost you money to hold it. So th that was the ultimate hot potato. And what we're seeing is air coming out of this global bond bubble. Uh, now, how this plays out, we'll have to see. But to me, again, that, that's, that's, that's the bubbles of all bubbles. And keep in mind, the, the economic and market foundation that we were sitting on over the past 10 years going into COVID was inflation's low, rates are at zero, they're negative, and we have all these central banks doing all this QE. That's the foundation at which we sat on. Now we have 40-year high in inflation. We have monetary tightening that's rather aggressive. And at least in the U.S. and also in the U.K. and Canada, we're going to have QT. So that, that's, that, that, that is a, a different ball game uh, that's taking place that we are not used to. So now what this all means in terms of how this is going to play out, I'm actually more worried about a, a death by a thousand cuts type, type situation that interest rates continue to remain sticky on the upside, uh, whether they bleed higher or not, we'll have to see. Inflation is going to remain sticky. Uh, over time, multiples are going to continue to compress because multiples don't do well in an inflationary type environment or a higher rate environment. Uh, I think profit margin degradation is, is, is we are just beginning. Uh, and that's going to be a story that we're going to talk more about. And that rather than, OK, we're going to have this deep recession in response to you know, the housing blow up, uh, I think we'll have maybe a mild recession, but something that's more drawn out. Uh, because we're not going to have that, that, that central bank slashing rate stimulant that we had in the past. Okay, so you, don't, you sound like you're negative on, on equities by saying that. Is there things that you are more positive no, on? No, I'm long some equities. So uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to be as realistic and trying to get through what I think is a, a challenging investing, investing environment rather than just you know, being a bull or a bear. So when we had Brian Westbury on, now, that, now I'm going back to the real estate market. You know, he's a monetarist through and through. It, and I, I've been trying to form this kind of theory, and I want your thoughts on it, is that he always says if there's $10 and 10 apples, and that's the entirety of everything, each apple is by definition worth a buck. If you all of a sudden add four more dollars to the money supply, each one by definition is worth a buck 40, the amount of, amount of supply and the amount of uh, demand has to cross. So all of a sudden they increased the money supply by 40%. Housing went up a crap ton. I, I contend there's not the market position. Is it a possibility that they don't really lose more than five or 10% of the downside? Just the fact that our dollars are are provably weaker, despite the fact that the dollar index lies to us and tell us they're stronger just because they're against other bullshit currencies or doing the same thing. Is there a possibility that real estate just stays where it's at or do we necessarily need to pull back? Well, in, in, in real estate, um, yeah, the, the situation is different in 08. In 08, we just, yeah, like we just had pure speculation uh, where now we just have major supply demand imbalances. I think in some hot markets that are up 50%, 60% over the past two years, yeah, they can cool down and you can see some price declines. Uh, in, in other markets, probably not. But I will say that, that seeing some price declines in some markets would be a good thing. You know, losing that first-time home buyer because they can't afford to buy their first home is a bad thing. A good thing would be an actual fall in home prices that can recalibrate the affordability of, of, of buying a home again, uh, because these people are forced to pay through the nose on rents and they're doing so and not building any equity. So I think it would actually be a good thing to see home price declines. But like, I, I guess to answer your question, some markets, I think we'll see outright declines. Some markets will see uh, just a, a dramatic slowdown in the pace of acceleration uh, in home prices. So Bob, I want to get Bobby you in for not, a Not now. a repeat of 08. Bobby, I want to get you a question now, but I want to circle back after Bobby's done with some thoughts about the labor market from you. But Bobby, what do you got? Well, there's two things I want to I want to do here. Number one, I want to give you a choice of the statements I'm going to read to you by telling you who said them and get your response. So I've got a Nouriel Rabini one. 
a Steph Pomboy, a William Dudley, and a Vincent Signorella. Which one do you want, Peter? You picked the uh, one who said it. Uh, Stephanie, I, I'm a fan of Stephanie. I'm a fan of Stephanie, and she's a friend, so I'll take her. Yeah, she's awesome. She's actually going to be on this podcast in a couple of weeks. So here is the statement. By the time employment... No, I will. We will. By the time employment is slackening to the degree the Fed wants, we will be in 2008 all over again. What's your reaction to that? Well, to me, 2008, what is is the housing bubble and the and, and the collapse in 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 these banks? Uh, yeah, home prices can eventually can end up falling. But I think the banking system is, is not going to collapse again. So I think there is some differentials. But like I said earlier, I can argue that the, the sovereign bond bubble uh, it was bigger than the U.S. housing bubble, certainly in dollars. Uh, you're talking many, many trillions of dollars of the global bond bubble relative to the U.S. housing market bubble then. Right, right. Uh, obviously, there were some bubbles in, in, in other housing markets. But you know the, the whole concept, and people talk about for years, the everything bubble, yeah. You've had housing bubbles in, in the UK, in, in, in uh, Australia, in Canada, in New Zealand, uh, that you can argue, wait. So there could be some similarities to 08 in terms of uh, it's going to be nasty, but I, I don't think something that takes down the US banking system. Now, I, I would have to believe she's not talking about like an exact replica, but I think she's probably talking about uh, a pretty nasty global circumstance well, at some point specifically mentions employment so i don't even look at it as a housing comment necessarily i think she sees uh, the unemployment rates going somewhere near where it was in 2008 well okay so if i'm right uh that profit margins are going to continue to contract which partly is due to higher labor costs i mean labor costs are, are a company's big, biggest expense you can draw uh, a chart going back 40 50 years and you can overlay profit margins with the direct uh, with the direction of labor costs. Labor costs go up, profit margins contract, and vice versa. Uh, so we will reach a point where you, you, we think about a company that has just dealt with a very sharp rise in their their cost structure, whether it was raw materials, labor, transportation costs, and they can't just immediately offset it through price increases. They they raise prices a bit. Uh, they cut some non labor costs. Then a quarter later, they raise prices a bit, they raise prices a bit. But if they can't recapture those, those profit margins, if the economy starts to slow, they're going to well, they're, they're first limit hiring, which we're seeing in, in certain parts of the economy, right. particularly tech-related stuff. And then they're going to start cutting. Because what happens at the end of an economic expansion, certain companies, certain industries, they overhire because they just assume that economic growth will just continue forever. And we're seeing some rationalization of that. But we'll get to a point where then it starts to lead to an acceleration in firings that will lead to a further deterioration in the, in the labor market. And then you have a, a you know, full-fledged recession at the same time you have sticky inflation, which is you know, a stagflationary type situation, which is not, not really, you know, obviously not a good environment, especially economically and certainly with the markets where the S&P right now is trading at you know, almost 20 times earnings again. I have a question, Bobby. Yeah. Um, so we talked about the labor market. By some estimates, 3 million people have walked away from the labor market over the last couple of years uh, above trend, baby boomers. I think part of it is because when crypto was at $3 trillion, all these kids fancy themselves as crypto traders and have no interest in finding jobs. Um, do you see that trend turning around now? And is inflation, and there's, there's nothing good about inflation to me. But is the cost of living increase, could that start to pull back and start to raise the participation rate? And could that be a little bit of a silver lining in the labor market? Actually, before, Peter, you addressed that, that was actually goes right into the question that I wanted to ask if I if I had time for one more. I'm sure. looking at the St. Louis Fred, St. Louis Fred, I always call it the St. Louis Fred, the Fred website from the St. Louis Fed. And I'm looking at uh, median usual weekly real earnings for people 16 and over. And the thing that I hadn't noticed before, while we talk about real wages falling consistently, basically since Q2 of 2020, the only uh, pause we had was from Q4 2021 to Q1 2022, where real wages were flat, according to this chart. But when we got to Q1 2022, we reached the same level pre-pandemic in terms of real wages. And now we're falling from there. 
is the entire effect somewhat psychological or is it just that inflation is going to be so entrenched? And to Jimmy's point, is this going to force people back into the workforce? Well, I, I, I think it's, it, it's, you know, the inflation that just eats away uh, one's, one's standard of living and that real wages are falling uh, for a majority of, of, of the populace. And obviously, uh, those that are making the least get hurt the most because a lot of this inflation is, is, a, is a bigger chunk of those wages. Um, so I, I think right there, you know, when you think about the economy and GDP, it's, it's, it, it, it comes down to the consumer, right? And they're a chunk of, of, of economic activity and, and it's going to hurt. And to Jim's point, yeah, you're going to see certain people that are going to come back into the labor force if they left. Uh, because they're going to realize, and however reason, whatever reason they left, whether it's because uh, leaving is 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 profitable for them, because uh, you know government transfer payments uh, are, are are a equal offset to what they were making beforehand. You know that only goes so far. Um, so yeah, maybe participation rate ticks up, but you certainly haven't seen it much yet. Uh, you, you, but but they're they're actually in the BLS number. There is a multiple jobs holder category, so you, we can definitely at least track it. And tell me about that. It's went up at the last reading, right? Yeah, we, we, and 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 and, and it, continue, it could continue uh, that some people start to, to 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 hold multiple jobs in order to uh, you know, keep paying the rent and put food on the table. Good. Selfishly, I want those people to come and work at my restaurant, which we're having a very difficult time finding any sort of labor. I got to go when we're done with this. I literally got to go and host at the restaurant because I don't have anyone else to host. I mean, it's you know, we have the, one of the busiest restaurants in the northwest suburbs. And I, there's going to be thousand people there tonight. And I only have I don't have the, the staff. So that but that problem could be solved soon if people are coming back into the workforce. Right. Yes, and, and, and you great, bring up a great point because th that's what is very interesting about the labor market right now is your industry, uh, the restaurant industry, the airline industry, the lodging industry, they can't find enough people, but you hear stories every week of this company or that company that's laying off people or uh, they're going to stop hiring. So it's a, it's a very uh, labor market that we're right now in, and um, it, it's not as clear cut. So when someone says, are we in a recession? I sort of nuance it. I say, yeah, we're in a recession for some and not yet for others. So I think you've noticed something. Every macro guest, every big name, intelligent macro guest, we tell them that I oh, have yeah, 25 minutes and then you can go. But we lie. We always keep you on way longer than that. And we have this time as well. Um, so it's Friday night. We're this part of it. You can stay for the trade part of it. But before you go, tell me about your evening. What do you do on a Friday night after a hard day of trading? Uh, you're going to go out and have a drink. You're going to take your lovely wife out to dinner. So we're, we're going, uh, we're taking a few days off starting tomorrow. So uh, we're going to go away. And so I got to pack up, um, order some dinner, take it easy and uh, be at the airport first thing in the morning. Fantastic. Are you then off all next week? I, I will be off next week. Yes. For a well-needed recharge. Good for you. Good for you. Do you want to stay and, for the and, trades? Or uh, no, I'm going to run because uh, I got a lot of these things to do uh, since uh, we have a lot ahead of us tonight. But um, I appreciate having me on. So I guess your Friday is, is, is right to the restaurant. I didn't intend it to be that. And now it is like I was supposed to go. It's the air and water show in Chicago today. My niece has a, lives in a building right on the water. The rest of my family and friends are going to the rooftop there to watch the, the air and water show, which is the today is the practice day. And it's great. So it's going to be this great party, but I have to go to this restaurant that is a great was a great investment, a great deal. But right now, I don't have enough staff. So yeah, that's my Friday night. But it's kind of it's fun too. I mean, I'll start having drinks too around seven o'clock as I'm hosting, so I'll have a good time. So don't worry about me. You're you're gonna wait until seven. <laughs> exactly. That that was a lie too. Now I've lied twice in this. Bobby, do you have any closing words? I because I, I, I know Bob's already started. Yeah, I had my He's first one at three thirty, and uh, right tonight I'm basically going to hang up with you guys and go get this refilled at a at a saloon of my choosing. Uh, my wife is actually in liquor sales, so if I showed you our liquor cabinet, it's it's obnoxious. It looks like prohibition, 
like we just got stuff stored in every nook and cranny of this house. I think I just invited theft, but whatever. <laughs> Peter, we'll see you. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Bob. I appreciate uh, having me on, and uh, it, was, it was a fun conversation. Thanks for being here, Peter. All right, so before, before we get to the trades, settle this dispute. My next-door neighbor, Marco Choa, He's, he's, I have a, had a bottle of, um, uh, Don Julio is Rapasado or Añejo, which is the one that's like $120 for the bottle. The Añejo. Yeah. So I have a bottle of the Añejo. He comes over to my house. He pours some of the Añejo and then mixes it with squirt that he brought. I'm like, Hey, what are you doing? And he's like, his contention was I'm Mexican. I tell you how to drink tequila. I'm like, this is my house and my Añejo. I tell you how to drink tequila. And we yelled at each other. Where do you weigh in on that? Hang on a sec. Hang on a second. <laughs> is he from Mexico? No. He's okay. from a Mexican neighborhood in the city, though. So he thinks he is. <laughs> well, I mean, is it the is it? Uh, I'm not gonna say this. I, I <laughs> podcast. He's wrong. Listen, I grew I the last place I lived in Chicago before I moved here was Pilsen. Okay, yeah. so Pilsen, obviously a very Mexican neighborhood, wonderful neighborhood to live in prior to the pandemic. I saw all kinds of full sugar drinks, right? But when I went into the old school Mexican restaurants, nobody put anything in their tequila that I saw. Particularly the Don Julio Añejo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, that's, good. That's the stuff, you, you know, they sipped it. That's what they did yeah. is they sipped it. Okay, so the dollar rally today, Euro got pummeled, went down to parity. The uh, British pound went down and the, like the one spot, one eight-ish, is the like the parity level technically in the euro? I'm sure you saw it. You've been watching yeah. it too. So my contention for my first trade, which is a British pound trade, and it's going to be a long. My contention is this: there was a lot of moods today in different markets saying, "Oh my gosh, what if Jay Powell sounds more hawkish than we think he's gonna at yeah. uh, Jackson Hole next week?" And I think a lot of people headed for the exits in a lot of trades. I'm not saying I'm a huge fan of either the euro or the British pound because they obviously have massive problems coming up economically they think they can tighten but if all of a sudden they're in a, a, a energy crisis in a couple months and my heart goes out to them because i think it's going to be a very very long cold winter but mm -hmm. i think everything today was an overreaction day so here's my british pound trade and tell me what you think based on and again it's you people know that most of this is technical i have that fundamental theory too but uh you know, to me, it went below the level. It rejected it. And to me, I think it, it could be good for bounce. And I know where I want my stop to be. So it's a buy at one spot, one, eight, three, six with a target of one spot, two, zero, two, zero with a stop placed at one point one seven, two, zero. Now the micro, this is the September micro British pound. Each one of those ticks, the fourth decimal point is 0.625, so 62 and a half cents. So this trade would make $187.50 if your target is reached and risk $72.50 if you're stopped out. Full disclosure, I don't have this trade on. I hemmed and hawed. I had a few other trades on. I almost put it on. I'm still considering it for Sunday night. And most of the other ones we talk about, I do have on, like the yield one from last week. Bobby, thoughts? So I like your target. But that honestly, from the way that I trade, and again, need to mention, this is just because of the way I trade, right? The British pound is down six of the last seven sessions. So it's not just today, right? Um, it also was the worst week for the British pound since about the week of September 7th of 2020. So um, I don't take this particular move lightly. The low today, if you take away... Um, and I'm talking about the British pound futures, by the way, if you take away the, and I know you are too, if you take away the July 14th low, this was the lowest price level that we've reached since uh, I believe it's March of 2020. So if you were going to buy, it's a good spot. I just can't do that. There was just too much weakness, too much volume. I would rather see a base form and then buy it on the way back up. But I'm also not selling it. No way in hell you can get me to sell into this weakness. So I think it's probably... If you if you were going to put on a long, it's a good long. It's just not somewhere, not a trade that I would do. No, and that's interesting. And I, as you were saying it, I was thinking of me being in the outfield and that knife falling and someone going, "Yeah, Dana corn, Jimmy, pull it in." But I understand. You've always kind of ball. done that, though. Like since <laughs> I've known you, you've always kind of done that. You're like, "This has gone too far." Ah, oh, crap! It's going farther. 
Um, <laughs> no, hold on. I've been right sometimes. No, too. you've been right a lot of the times. You've been right a lot of the times. I just, these trades to me, for me, I can't do them. Like, I just can't, you know, I've bought the low and sold the high four times in my career, and I'm doing this almost 30 years. That being so said, I don't try to buy any lows. What you just said, I read your NASDAQ trade and my NASDAQ trade the same way too. Yep. And I, although I don't think it's the same thing, I think mm -hmm. they are about third cousins uh, because <laughs> it did, it get, did get pummeled today based on the yeah. same fundamental thesis that the British pound did. But again, but you, like you were saying, British pound has been pummeled other days too. So I don't know if I can make all that comparison, but you want to go to your NASDAQ trade and both of ours are yeah, the same no. way, which by the way, it scares the crap out of us when both of us are the same way, but anyway, go on. It's never good. So I wanted to buy um, the NASDAQ at about 13,222 last podcast, never got there, went straight up, but did not get halfway to my target, which was 1440. So I'm basically doing the exact same trade with the exact same stop except I went ahead and bought it when it got down to the lows. So I'm currently long at 13,230. Okay, my stop's in the same place, 12,852. Okay, my target is still 14,040, but at full disclosure, I'll go on Twitter if I do this, I might drop it because my target was the 200 and the 200 is ticked lower a little bit. Now the NASDAQ can spike through it. I mean, if we get up, it can spike through it. It'll probably be, a last second decision by me. If we get up to it and then kind of start to fall with volume, I'll just exit the whole trade. So I'm risking about 756. That's about $16 more than I was risking on the previous one. And uh, in order to make about 1620, which strikingly enough is about $16 less than I was going to make on the previous one. So I just got in the same trade a little early. That's all. No. So, and uh, I like it a lot, and you're going to see that I like it too. Mine, you know, technical analysts. Um, look at things differently. None of them look at them the same way. I think there was going to be a pull down, pull back to 13,100-ish area. So that's where I put my buy-in and a pullback, 13,100, with a target of 13,950 on the upside. Where was your target on the upside? 14,04. Okay, so actually that's the same general, yeah, general same neighborhood general. as well. And yeah. my stop placed at 12,700 below. This yeah. is in the... Um, this is in the, the NASDAQ. It's a September micro NASDAQ. Right. So that would, for my trade, would be 1700 bucks if target is reached, losing 800 um, So, you know, that that's you know, six and one half dozen the other. Both will be very, very similar trades. I was going to say about the technical analysis thing. When we have our first Friday of every month show, when Mike Arnold is on, he is so thorough and so good, he can talk me out of these things. I'm glad he's not here to do that. <laughs> You might have talked us both out of the NASDAQ. Is this catching a falling knife, like I said, though, or no? Not in the NASDAQ. I mean, I, if you look at it, to me, if you look at a NASDAQ chart, I mean, it's a pullback, right? I mean, the NASDAQ, uh, this ends a week, a, a streak of four consecutive weeks higher, right? Um, yeah, we're down three of the last four sessions. But again, this would have been the fourth consecutive week higher. So from that perspective, you're not looking necessarily at you know a market that is in collapse at all i don't think it is no. at all but having said that like i'm on the same page as peter i think i think the market has no idea my credibility argument about the fed will be decided over the next couple of weeks because honestly again they have two mandates and i hate to keep beating this but i can't understand why anyone could possibly disagree with how smart I'm being right now. If they have two mandates and unemployment is 3.5%. Now, I don't believe the job market is as strong as those numbers state. And also, this, you know, people are saying, oh, the Fed's just got to be so angry that stocks are rallying. Why would that make them angry? They can keep hiking. Oh, no doubt. If the stock market were down 45%, then they got to think about it, right? They have to consider it. stock market's rallying, job market's strong, and inflation, though we had one month. And as I mentioned in last week's show, you have to go back to way back to like 2018 to get two months in a row that weren't up, except for the pandemic, which we had three months down during the pandemic. If you take the pandemic out, it's very rare that the US gets two flat or two negative months of CPI in a row. Now we're gonna get PCE next week. So we'll see. And by the way, it's at the start of Jackson Hole. CPI so, PCE is Friday. So it's right before Powell's speech, I think. By the way, and Bobby and I pretty much agree on this too. They have 
three mandates, not two. The third one's implicit, and that's asset prices. And yep. it's anyone who thinks that's not the case is full of crap because that it is the case. Uh, back to my trade, by the way, too. The reason I am what I actually have on is like a synthetic straddle that's weighted to bullish that will gain deltas. It's like these flies I put on that'll be like imbalanced with the first call spread much bigger than the second call spread. And actually it's against some short micros. So mm -hmm. for full transparencies, I am mildly long the market, but only if it starts to rally and then I will be longer and longer as it goes higher. So again, I don't, I don't want anyone to think I'm a liar here. That, that would be my trade example if I was strictly using the micros to, uh, to, um, to mirror my opinion. I have options on instead. That's, that's you know, a, we a, a way we to a couple, We got a couple minutes left. I think I'll make a commitment to people that we get to a certain number of followers on the show, and I'm not quite sure when that is. We'll stick in an extra 15, 20 minute show where you can explain those traits to people, how you structure them. Oh, good, yeah. People would be interested in the way you do these because these are trades that you mentioned this to me personally, and I've seen you mention it on interviews. You like trades where you can sleep at night. And I think oh, yeah. a lot of people like those. Yeah, and I, I actually, and options again, some people are scared of options on futures. If you start to know them and tame them and understand their characteristics, I think, it, I mean, it's one of them, it's like a puzzle that it's one of the things that keeps me active. I think it's it's fantastic. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Did you just commit me to 20 extra minutes sometime oh. soon? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I suppose you have the authority. All right. And I'm just, I'm going <laughs> to lean back like you do. Does this make my arms look scrawny too? That, you know? You're an asshole. <laughs> I'll beat you. Well, let's race a mile. How about that? Well, hang on. Are we driving or are we running? Oh, no, you beat me in driving. All, All right. right. <laughs> I, I got to go. This has been fun. Thank you, Bobby. Have a great weekend. Hey, buddy. You too. See you.